Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from Quick Book Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing? Do you know what? My youngest, still a teenager, but hey, has a girlfriend. And this girlfriend came to our house the other day and this girl is into books. She likes reading. I felt like I was welcoming the most important person into our house because nobody apart from me in this house likes books. Honestly, it's driven me mad that nobody likes them. So she comes in and I think my son was looking forward to spending some time with her. But no, I said, I really did say, come with me and come and look at my books. And granted, when she saw my rainbow coloured bookshelves, she did. She was very happy. And I did give her a book and a matching pin badge to go with the book. So she was well chuffed about it. I can't say the same for my son, but I'm just like, oh, she's a keeper, that one. He's going to have to marry her and live with her for the rest of his life because I think she's marvellous. So that's what's happening with me. Anyway, enough about that. Let's talk about some books. What books have I got on today? got some crackers. So we've got Force of Hate by Graham Bartlett and Graham's coming on to talk to us about that book. Then we've got Murder Under the Tuscan Sun by Rachel Reese, and Rachel's coming on to talk to us about that book. Rachel does also go by another name but more on that later. I'm also reviewing 16 Horses by Greg Buchanan, 12 Secrets by Robert Gold. We're in the numbers 16, 12 and then finally Beautiful Shining People by Michael Grothus. Some excellent books. So let's get started. And as I say, the first one is Force of Hate. Sorry for all the book noises. Not very professional of me, but I just have this heap of books on my knee. Let me read you the blurb. When a far bomb attack at a Brighton traveller's site kills women and children, Chief Superintendent Joe Howe has strong reason to believe the new, dubiously elected far-right council leader is behind the murders. Against the direct orders of her chief constable, Joe digs deeper into the killings. She uncovers a criminal ring of human trafficking and euthanasia, all leading to a devastating plot which threatens thousands of lives and from which the murderous politician looks sure to walk away scot-free. And let's go to Graham to read us the first sentence. It took all Aji had to suck in the faintest breath, the lung-crushing stench pervading the impossibly tight fissure she'd wedged herself into, tempted her to succumb to suffocation. This was her third, or was it fourth, leg of her month-long escape, hidden in pitch-dark trailers. This was meant to be the shortest, yet it cost her tenfold the other trips, but she'd been told it was worth it. 
guys, 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 you've heard me talk about the first book in this series, which was called Bad for Good. I think I, I only reviewed it a few weeks, months ago, and I love this one. And this one is even better. If you like crime books, you're going to love these. There's just, they're brilliantly written, but there's just something more about them. They're just oh, really good. Bravo. Yeah. If you like crime, you need to go and acquire these books because they're great. So this one, Force of Hate, let's go and talk to Graham about it. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast. You've heard me talk about his books before, but here he is to talk about his latest fabulous book, Force of Hate. It's Graham Bartlett. Graham, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited about this. I love this book so much. There's a lot to talk about. But let's start with the real basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? So the book is the second in the Joe Howe series, first being Bad for Good. And, and in this book, Joe Howe is the divisional commander at Brighton Police. So she's in charge of Brighton Police and she finds herself working alongside a neo-Nazi council. Uh, and this council basically want to ethnically cleanse the whole city. The, the problems really start when, when there's a firebomb attack on a traveller's site. Nobody from the council seems that interested, even though a number of people have died. Uh, and then Joe starts to realise that there are migrants being trafficked into the country to support basically modern slavery in care homes. And, and within those care homes, there's euthanasia. Uh, and the whole city is toxic to serve this neo-Nazi agenda and it builds and builds and builds and, and Joe eventually realises that she has to put her own life at, at risk in order to save everybody else's. And let's talk about Joe because she is quite a character. She's wonderful. I would definitely want her on <laughs> my side. Where did she come from? The story about why I've written it from a, from from that ranking officer's perspective is that I used to do that job. I was the divisional commander at Brighton and Hove. When I started writing Bad for Good, I thought, I don't want this people to have any suggestion that this is autobiographical in any way. So I thought, well, the, you know, one way to, to, to do that is to, is, is to make the protagonist a woman. And, you know, I didn't realise quite actually how difficult that was going to be because I knew what it was like as a, as, as a white sort of middle-class you know, heterosexual man to get to that level in a very traditional hierarchical police force. I had no idea what it was like for a woman to do that. But so, but I once I decided that's what I was going to do, I spoke with a number of um, former colleagues who'd, who'd done exactly that. They, they you know, a lo lot of brilliant women that had got to that level and, and, and stayed at that level and some had progressed even further and learnt so much about it. And I just thought it was a... I thought, I thought having a woman in that role was slightly different in that you could show a softer side to her, but also you could show a really steely side to her. And, and being able to contrast those parts of her personality, I thought would be really important. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the way that she deals with some of the, uh, the, the overt and, 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 and covert sexism and, and misogyny that, that comes along her way. It's not the story, it's not the main story, but it was just really interesting to be able to, to kind of use that as a, as a bit of a vehicle to narrate how policing is for some women. I mean, I just love her so much. And I wondered if she stays in your mind when you've finished writing a book, if she's still there talking to you. Oh, oh 100%. 100%. You know, I, I, I worry about her. And bearing in mind, I'm the only person that can do her any harm because, I, you know, she's, she's in my head. 
uh, I worry about what I'm going to do to her next. And you know, you'll you'll have read that. Mm. You know, I don't I don't give her an easy time, but but I I you know I, I get concerned about her her family life and her professional life and who she can trust and 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 I sometimes I'm just sort of out walking the dog or driving and I, and I think of something oh that's a really Joe thing to say or really Joe thing to do and I. I kind of jot it down and use that in the next uh, the next tranche of writing. Oh, that's wonderful, though, that you're sort of fully immersed in the character and she's so vibrant to you as well. I mean, I've talked about this when I reviewed your first book, for, but for me, you take... I mean, I love crime books and police procedurals, but you take that to another level because you add in, I refer to it as like a sort of a, a line of duty element because it's about the hierarchy as well as you've mentioned and the politics that you don't tend to find in many crime books was that something that you felt compelled to sort of shout about yeah no it it, it really was I mean it, you know a, a lot of crime books are, are based around an investigation and, and and senior officers very senior officers don't get involved in investigations on a day-to-day level um, but but I you know having lived that world for four years I I wanted to show actually how pressurized that role can be when external politics and external agendas come come in and they collide with you know certainly I I used to regard as effective policing and you kind of you're juggling this all the time so both books and you know future books will will, will always be about you know those social and political pressures that are applied to policing that maybe the public don't see in their day to day. But actually, have a massive impact on on how policing is discharged in any city, any town. I learnt so much from it as I was reading it. As I say, it is almost a whole new genre of crime writing. I think it's just brilliant. Well, I, it's interesting because I run courses for crime writers and I advise crime writers, and I'm always telling them not to get fixated with rank. And if they're writing a sort of a, you know murder mystery or you know an investigative type. Book, you know, quite often they'll put senior officers in roles that you know quite junior officers would do because the junior officers are better at it. And, you know, that, and that's their job. Quite often, I get sort of bounced back to me. Well, you're writing about a chief superintendent. How can you say that? And I, when I said, well, yeah, but I'm not getting her to do things that a chief superintendent wouldn't do. But it's still dynamic. It's still interesting. Hopefully, and 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 it's still well. I mean, people buy the book, so hopefully, um, people can people engage with that that level of policing which they have not had a chance to do before and I would like to just talk about these courses that you do and the impact that you have on other crime writers because you have been working with crime authors for for quite a long time before you decided to actually put pen to paper yourself that's right yeah it started with um when when I left the police and I I was working with Peter James uh and helping him on, on on his books and then word got round predominantly when we when we bought a, a non-fiction book out and you know eventually you know it's sort of it's it's just kind of snowballed and you know I I I, I advise I, I think I must have advised well over 100 crime writers from different levels from from people that are literally just starting out you know I don't know it's my first book I don't know how to approach it, anything about policing to people like Peter James and Mark Billingham and Anthony Horowitz and people like that and, and it, it's an absolute joy because you know, my, I, I think my role is to is is to provide the scaffolding, providing the authentic scaffolding for the story to to, to, to hold the story up. I'm a crime writer myself, and as, as obviously you know we're talking about here, so I understand the needs of the writer, the needs of the story, needs of characters, 
but can also put authentic procedure in that so, so that the world, the, the people that populate that world, are, are believable. It might not be entirely accurate because accurate accuracy can be dull, but it certainly provides that authenticity which, as I say, acts as a scaffolding so that the story can then stand up. Yes, because it's this realism that's always the question, because I have no contact with the police. I wouldn't know whether something was right or not. But presumably there are a lot of readers who know something about it and therefore there is a pressure on you, as you say, to get to a a level where you're not just, it's not turning into a non-fiction book. No, that, 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 that's absolutely right. I'm a huge advocate, and, and in my own writing I try to do this, that every word on the page has to earn its place there. And if you're literally just kind of describing a procedure because you know a procedure, but it doesn't actually take the story or the characters anywhere, then get rid of it and, and gloss over that. But I, I kind of use this, this phrase, you know, you don't have to get it all right, but don't get it wrong. So what that means is that you don't have to go into all of the detail, but if you are going to, so if you're going to go, if you're going to do an interview scene because it's it's necessary, make sure that the parts of the interview scene that you're going to show are right, are authentic. You know, you don't want to show all the booking into custody before that, the the hanging on the phone for the Crown Prosecution Service to make a decision on charging, the typing up of all the paper. You don't want all that in it, but if you're you know if you're cutting to the chase in an interview scene, make that bit right. The the readers that just can then buy into your world. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, if people want a textbook on policing, they'll go and buy one. Quite. Now let's talk about the tension in this wonderful book because there is a lot of tension and yet you don't feel exhausted reading it. You manage it well. How do you go about doing that? I don't know, really. I don't. (laughs) That's honest. (laughs) There's a duty to give the reader, you know, an opportunity to kind of, just absorb. Uh, so if you, you know, if it's kind of constantly at you know ninety miles an hour, then then you know it's very difficult to keep up with. But you know, but but also keeping the keep, keeping the that 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 tension in the background. So you know it hasn't gone away, but but you're actually you know you're just allowing it to kind of solidify really. And 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 I think by breaking up the scenes with high energy scenes, high octane scenes, with you know going home with Joe and getting her to kind of you know have a have have a kind of cry with Darren her husband or or just you know going out for a I, lo- I love the scenes where where you know couples go out for a coffee you know we used to go out for a coffee she was going to get a coffee and just talk this through and you know her and Bob who's the DI Bob Heaton who's who's her DI who's be- sort of developed really into a, into the second main character you know they, they they know each other so well there's a huge huge sort of gap in their ranks but they know each other so well that they can go out for a coffee and become Joe and Bob, whereas in the police station it's it, it's mom, you know. It's so it's just kind of showing those relationships and showing how police officers can diffuse their own, you know, their own tensions, but also know that you know there's still a whole lot of grief waiting for them when they get back. And there are some really difficult themes covered in the book, very of this time, and there are some, you know, uh, characters that are really awful and they use horrible words but it uh, again well it must have been difficult to write but it's part of how the story is based yeah it, and, and it's you know you're, you're you're absolutely right there it was it was difficult to write because I mean we, we we cover or I cover you know human human trafficking and as you say that's you know well in the news at the moment you know with 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 the various things that have been going on uh, around government policy and Gary Lineker's comments and that sort of thing, mm. uh, but then we go into to, you know into what life is actually like for 
some of those trafficking victims when they do get the job that they've been promised, which is nothing like what they've been promised, and how you know how how the elderly are treated in in care homes in or can be treated in care homes, and then the you know the 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 the, the stark racism, the, the the sort of naked racism really, um, and yes, I you know I, in dialogue I I use some offend or my characters use some offensive terms, but you know, you can't shy away from that. I think I think if you you know if you're creating overtly racist characters, then you know they have to use racist terms in in their dialogue otherwise you're not going to believe them um and you know i hope people when they're reading it understand that i'm doing it to kind of to to, to show how dreadful yes these people are rather than to to, to sort of wallow in 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 cheap cheap uh, dialogue yes absolutely and it, it works entirely on that basis do you you know if someone wrongs you if someone pulls out in front of you or I don't know nicks the trolley at the supermarket you want do you sort of write down their character in your notebook and think right I'm going to turn you into somebody not so nice no I don't I I, 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 I don't do that I, I I won't say I would never do that but I haven't done that at the moment no I but most of my characters are are, are kind of amalgams of people that I've come across uh, not necessarily in the roles that they're in but um, particularly you know around the 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 two antagonists in in this book you know they are sort of amalgams of a number of people that that you know for for me have have got quite dreadful dreadful views and traits and 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 express them but they're not they're no one person but I wouldn't say I'd never do that if they if you know if somebody did pull out in front of me in a particularly aggressive way they might get killed in the next book but we'll see and do you still keep in touch with your ex-colleagues so that if there's any interesting stories that could be worked into a future book are you still uh, buying them a coffee yeah i mean and and also for the advisory work you know I, I i have to keep up to date so i'm i'm kind of constantly you know just checking out thinking and but yeah i'm you know t- talking to people all the time and now because you know now i'm sort of writing people are coming to me and saying God, this job we had the other day you know you you'd never believe this and and it's like they come to me more than I come to them now but uh you know I'll, I'll, I'll always listen and, and always uh always use it where I can but with this being your second book I'm interested in the process of having a book published what surprised you most about that whole process the amount of work that there I mean I've got brilliant publishers my publishers Alison and Busby are uh that they're they're an independent publisher but they they punch way above their weight and they, they are absolutely incredible in terms of not only the editorial support they give me, but also the publicity and, and, and promotional and marketing support as well. They're, 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 they're astonishing. But yeah, the, the amount of work that there is around, uh, around publishing when, when the publication come, you know, it's, it's, I mean, now I'm, I'm sort of, you know, preparing for, for force of hate to come out and it's, it's it's constant really i mean people because of the the job i used to do i get requests from journals and newspapers to 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 write articles that 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 kind of link the book to current current affairs if i was writing one yesterday which links it to you know a, a very obvious current affair that's going on at the moment so there's a lot of kind of trying to think of different angles to bring the publicity of the book in but getting to the publication point in the first place is you know astonishingly difficult you know i i was very lucky to have a a, a brilliant agent in david headley 
who re read Bad for Good and, and sort of bought into me straight away, which I was delighted about. But then the, you know, when you're out on submission, the rejections come in uh, and, you know, I, therefore that brings the self-doubt and the, you know, who am I kidding and all of that. Then the editorial process, which in fairness wasn't, wasn't too onerous on either either of the books but you know that that you do have to sacrifice some things and so you know I, there's one particular scene from bad for good that i had to take out completely mainly to do with word count but also it it, it taught it, it had characters in there that didn't really kind of serve the purpose and i loved that scene so much so i've got it tucked away and i might use it in another book but the, the actual publication process is, is hard work but it, it's so satisfying you know to see your book out there people buying your book people talking about your books it's just incredible you know for me they're still in my head but then now they're in other people's heads do you wish you'd started writing your own book ages ago or was it was it the right time yeah no i i i, I think i i i do wish that I've, I've never actually thought about that it's a really good question i mean people say oh have you always wanted to be a writer and the answer was no i i didn't it was only when i left the police but but yeah that's a really good yeah i i probably would love to have started, you know, 10 years before I did. And, and kind of, because I, I get so much satisfaction out of it. You know, I absolutely lose myself when I'm writing and, and researching and planning. Not that I do a huge amount of planning, but, you know, I, and I, I, I didn't realise how much joy there was to, to, to having that. And, and, and also every, every word you write, you develop as a writer. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be an even better writer now if I'd started earlier. So, yeah. Still, still learning. And with David involved as your agent, are there any TV developments coming on that we could talk about? Nothing at the moment, uh, but very open to offers. <laughs> very open to offers. Um, I, I think, obviously, I'm going to say this, aren't I? I, I? I think it would be it would work really well on the screen. I think you, you know you've you've got a very clear sense of place, um, uh, and you've got some you know strong characters and some themes that frankly haven't been touched before by by by. Um, TV drama, uh, and of course, I'll always happy to work as the as the advisor on on them as well. So, help them get their get their procedure right, get their uniforms right. You know, <laughs> oh, that's very generous. And what about book three? Tell me, will there be a third book about Joe? I hope so. Uh, it's certainly I'm, I've been writing it, and um, you know, as as you can imagine, uh, I've I'm sort of putting Joe through the ringer even even more. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that um, that we'll be able to get that one away. But it's, it's on different themes, but still with this kind of socio-political pressures and, and how that how that kind of actually beats Joe and, 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 and all of her colleagues up quite severely throughout. Oh, gosh, well, sounds weird to say, but I, yes, I, I can't wait. I really support you in these books. But we come to the last question, Graham, and this is the most important one for this podcast. And the question is, what biscuit is powering the writing of these fabulous books? Oh, uh, it's got to be a, a milk chocolate hobnob, I would say. Excellent choice. No, because I, I, I think with the grains in them, they, they're good for you as well, so they don't <laughs> count as calories. So. Yes, that is what I want to hear. Good answer. Love it. Yeah, that, that's super. <laughs> Well, it's just been wonderful to talk to you. And even though you're suffering today from, from a, a bug, I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah, man flu. Yeah, <laughs> serious <laughs> stuff. Joe wouldn't get this. <laughs> no, she would not. She would not. Uh, <laughs> but Graham Bartlett, whose latest fabulous book is Force of Hate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
coming up, another interview and more book reviews. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So let's get on to the next book, Murder Under the Tuscan Sun. An isolated castle, a deadly crime. Is this real or a nightmare? <laughs> by, of, co- of course, by Rachel Reese. Let's read the full blurb on this one for you. In a remote castle high up in the Tuscan hills, secrets are simmering amongst its glamorous English residents. The ailing gentleman art dealer, his dazzling niece, her handsome fascist husband, their neglected young daughter, the housekeeper who knows everything, and Connie, the English widow, working for them. Each night there is a terrible wailing inside the walls and other sinister noises. Is Connie losing her grip on reality or does someone in the castle want her gone? Wow. And let's go to Rachel for those first few sentences. Pinner, March 1927. Invalid's companion sought for English household near Florence, Italy. Must have patience and a tolerable reading voice. Would suit mature lady with an adventurous spirit. Knowledge of Italian and advantage. The advertisement, yellowing now and crumpled, lay between us on the ugly mahogany side table, 
with the twisted legs that Walter's aunt, who never liked him, had given us as a wedding present. Wow, what a book. Well, without further ado, I think we should just go and talk to Rachel. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast Rachel Reese, whose latest absolutely fabulous book is Murder Under the Tuscan Sun. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Now, before we get started on the book, we must just talk about you because people may recognise your voice and think, I've heard that voice. Oh, and... Do we have yeah. to? <laughs> <laughs> You're not just Rachel Reese. You have another split personality. Tell <laughs> us who you are. <laughs> yes, I, I am Tammy Cohen and I also write psychological thrillers under the name Tammy Cohen. But I also started off under the name Tamar Cohen and wrote dark women's psychological fiction I don't know what you'd call it now, but uh, I wrote three, th four books under the name Tamar Cohen and then switched to Tammy Cohen and then Rachel Reese. But now I do concurrently Rachel Reese and Tammy Cohen. And is that difficult with book signings? Do you have to remember what name to <laughs> the sign? First, the first time I signed um, for, as Rachel Reese, I, it just hadn't occurred to me that I would have to s sign under a different name. And I did, uh, and I think it was at the Cheltenham Festival. So it was a really big festival. There were lots of people and there was a big queue, which there isn't always, but there was a big signing queue. And, and the first person came up and I realised I had no idea how to write Rachel <laughs> Reese, And I hadn't practised it. I didn't know. So the first few were just like a, a child literally writing in a, in their left hand. It just looked like someone had done it with crayon or something. Um, so, yes, it was a bit of a shock, that one. <laughs> you never know. Those could be worth a lot of money now. Yeah, yes. Keep your childlike <laughs> finger-painted signatures. <laughs> OK, let's talk about this book. Can you just give us an idea about this glorious book? Oh, yes. OK, it is Murder Under the Tuscan Sun. It's about a middle-aged woman called Constance Bowen, who in 1927, on a whim, replies to a classified ad and it completely changes her life. At the time, uh, Constance is a 49-year-old widow who's always done exactly what was expected of her. She's always done her duty. Her husband has died a year before and her beloved daughter, Millie, four years before that. Her slightly uptight son, James, expects her to live out the rest of her days quietly in the house in Pinner surrounded by her late husband's aunt's hideous furniture. But when Constance sees an advert for a companion to an invalid based in Italy, she spots an opportunity for a last-minute adventure of her own and a second chance at life. It's the first properly selfish thing she's ever done. So much against James's advice, she finds herself heading to Italy to take up her new position, living with the family of a wealthy British art dealer in a castle just outside Florence. For a while, everything is exactly as she's dreamed of, and she finds herself undergoing something of a reawakening among the golden sunsets and purple dawns of Tuscany, falling under the spell of her dazzling employers, Evelyn and Roberto, and her charismatic charge, William. But after a while, things start to change, and it becomes clear the family are not who they first appeared to be. Connie's adventure, which started out so seeped in sunshine, now turns very dark indeed. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I read, someone said it's an Agatha Christie set in an escapist Tuscan setting in the 1920s. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm reading this book. Thank you very much. And let's talk about the location and time frame, which just seemed 
so ideal what made you land on those uh the time frame i i wanted i read this a uh, book called um enchanted april Have you read that it's about it was made into a film subsequently and it's about four um women all strangers to each other meet in the same london club on a on a during a rainstorm so they can't leave and they're all bored and they're in the, in this kind of common room or whatever it is and one of them picks up a newspaper and finds a classified ad cast someone is renting out their castle in italy on the coast and they hatch this plan to rent it for a month between them, these four complete strangers, and they go out to Italy. And I read this and I was thinking, what a great, what a, that was, it kind of sung to me on different levels. So the idea of castle, Italy, coast, why not? Fantastic. But also the idea of, of a classified ad that completely randomly changes somebody's life or, or multiple people's lives. So that was, and that was set in the 1920s. So that was kind of bubbling under and then I started reading about it. So I, I knew I wanted to, to do something with the classified ad and something with the castle in Italy. I also came across this amazing TV interview, early TV interview, 1959 with Edith Sitwell who was celebrated eccentric, British eccentric in the, in the 20th century. And she was a member of an aristocratic British family who had a, a stately home in England, but also a villa in, just outside Florence where they spent a lot of time. Edith Sitwell, Sitwell was this amazing character who dressed in kind of turbans and robes and feathers and, and she had this uh, cut glass accent and she was being interviewed and they asked her about her childhood and she said it was terrible. She had this terrible childhood, even though you would think Villa Italy idyllic. No, she had um, parents who she said actively disliked her. And what they disliked most about her was her appearance because she was very unusual looking. She had, a, have you seen pictures of her? She had a very thin, narrow face with a very prominent nose she did not conform to any ideas of conventional beauty at all. In the interview, the interviewer asks her how her parents um, dealt with that, and she said it, their behaviour was unspeakable. But when I went to look at what, what actually happened, her father had made her wear various metal contraptions, one on her back and I think one on her nose, um, to try to force her to conform to, to, to how he thought people should look. So I, I also had this idea then about this, this idyllic, beautiful setting of Italy, you know, and it is so beautiful there. But with this deeply unhappy, dysfunctional family at the centre of it. And at that time in Italy, in the 1920s, so a lot of the big houses and villas and castles were owned by British or, or Americans. Um, the, the very wealthy Italians had owned palazzos in, in the city and the, the big houses outside. But then they, after the, the First World War, they, they lost their money and they were selling them off to the, to the British and the Americans. And so it all kind of felt like it came together. And so there was a brief kind of golden period where, they, where the British and Americans had these, the run of these amazing places and it all should have been halcyon days. But then, of course, the fascists were coming into power and there, there was, they kind of built up a lot of anti-fascist um, 
foreign feeling towards the beginning of the Second World War. So it was a kind of volatile period of history, um, but also very interesting, lots of eccentric characters, lots of writers were there, lots of artists. And I just, I love that idea of the disparity between how something looks on the outside and, and how it really is. So that, so that image of the beautiful villa, but with this very dark family at the centre of it. So all of those things kind of appeal to me. Now, if I was basing a book in Italy, I would be doing a lot of research. I'd be telling everyone, no, I have to do a lot of research <laughs> out there and extensively touring Italy. Were you able to do that? Yes, I must live there from now on. <laughs> Is that what you were able to do or, or not quite? Well, with the other books, so so the Rachel Reese books, the first one was uh, Dangerous Crossing, was set on an ocean liner going from from. London to uh, Tilbury Docks to, to Sydney and stopping at all these amazing glamorous locations along the way and the second one was uh, in the Riviera the third one was Cuba the first one obviously I didn't take a, take an ocean liner from London to Sydney but I did a lot of, of research and I'd been to, to quite a few of the, the places the second one I, I went to the south of France and had a lovely, awful, awful research trip to the Riviera. And then um, the third one, again, had a fantastic, amazing holiday, holiday, no, research Research, trip. keep saying that, remember, research. <laughs> <laughs> remember, yes, 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 HMRC, it was a research trip yeah. to Cuba. Yeah. And then this one, so this one, when I was coming up with the setting, I was thinking, well, fantastic! I can set it somewhere. I've always I've been to Italy, but I'd never been to Florence, and I was very excited about going. And I started doing all the research, and I started writing it, thinking, well, I'll I'll get going, and then I'll go and do all the research there. And then lockdown happened, and so so I actually had to do most of the research on Google's and it was only after the lockdown lifted that I was able to go and actually see it all for myself. So um, so it's not at all the same going um, down Google Street View <laughs> and trying to imagine what it was like. No, especially if, you've, if you'd been looking forward to it, thinking, oh, gosh, great. I know, I know, but delayed gratification. It was lovely when it came. <laughs> and did you know how the story would end? We're not giving any spoilers away here, but did you know in your mind how it would end before you started writing it? No. <laughs> no I never I never really know no I wish I did know how things would end and I wish I knew all the plot points and I uh, but it just doesn't seem to fall like that for me so I kind of know what I want how it's more what I want to happen to the character so the, the characters kind of dictate what happens and I knew that I wanted to have a character who was really tested and who had to um, come into her own and, and, and to start to believe in herself and to start to trust herself. Otherwise, you know, because she's gaslighted, she starts to think she's going mad. She lives in a, in a time where women's opinions are thought of as less important than than men's where women don't have agency and it is very much a book about women and, and this particular woman who comes into her own sense of agency in a, in a world where women a lot of women 
don't have any agency. It's about how she has to trust herself because she can't trust anyone else. That was kind of how I knew that I wanted the book to go rather than any specific events. And by the time you've come up with the idea and the location and the characters, is that the point where the book for you has got its groove and feels stable and durable? Or do you have to be so many words in until you reach that point? I never reach the point where a book feels solid until I've reached the end of a first draft. There's always this kind of knot of panic that it's not going to somehow join up at the end. And it's only literally, when I I finish that first draft, the relief is just, because even though, even if it's terrible, and even if you have to go and, and, and change loads of it, you know that there is the, the makings of a book there. But right up until then, I, I still don't know if it's actually going to work. You're such a prolific author, but when was the moment in your life you thought about writing or you became a writer? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think most, most people you talk to will probably say that they wrote from when they were children. I mean, I always liked to write. The only thing I was really good at um, at school, I always wrote. I always, My poor parents were like... Every birthday they would get given like hideous bits of paper tied together with string with like terrible poet poetry <laughs> on it. But um, yeah, so I but I always thought that you could never make a living out of being a writer. That was what what I was always told at school and everything. You can never make a living out of being a writer. And so when I left university, I went I became I went and taught abroad, and then I became a secretary in a magazine office of a, of a marketing magazine and it was looked around and I realized that none of the other people who were actually writers on the magazine knew any more than I did and were, were any better than I was so so then I suddenly thought actually you can make a living out of writing so then I became a magazine journalist and a newspaper journalist and a, a freelance journalist for years and years and years but but what I really wanted to do was to write fiction always I guess because I don't plan things although I I would very much like to start planning planning novels I would start writing novels full-length novels and get 10,000 words in and run out of plot and run out of steam and you know when you're sitting writing and nobody else is seeing what you're writing you don't have any judgment on it you don't you don't know if it's any good so I would I had all these kind of 10,000 words extracts of books but no actual novels and then it was only in to about 2009 or 10 when print journalism you know the writing was on the wall then for print journalism and it 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 became really obvious that I was going to have to try and develop something else and that's when I actually managed to produce a, a kind of finished novel and then my life changed I was 47 so I'm not it's not dissimilar to Constance in in the book um who is 49 I was 47 when my first novel came out and that was the beginning of a whole new life so you know this, this book is very much about second chances and and how it's never too late and and that's very much how it has been for me I've got I've had a whole new 
life since since then I've met fantastic people you know I've got a whole new set of friends I, I've traveled I've got I've written I think this is book 15 I've written 15 <laughs> novels so so yeah it's never too late <laughs> that's wonderful that's really inspirational I think and with all the books that you've written I'm interested in the process from when you first come up with an idea to the day after publication what day would you say is the best day and what day is the worst day? The best day for me is the finishing of the first draft because up until then, mm. literally, I have this this knot in my stomach that I think there is a chance this isn't going to work. I don't know how it's all going to tie together. I don't know if it's going to be successful or satisfying you know to anybody once you finish that first draft you know that you've got something to work with and then it's kind of you can relax and go go through even if it's terrible you can go and make it less terrible you know you can go back and see see what you have but you have to have that first draft uh yeah so when I finish that the the relief is incredible I mean there, there are obviously there are other other highs, you know, when you get some kind of recognition or, you know, the first Rachel Reese was a Richard and Judy pick. That was an amazing moment when that happened. But but for me, the big moment in every book is, is finishing that first draft. So do you like the editing process then? I like the editing, my editing, when I do, you know, when it's my ed own edit, <laughs> when I'm going back through and kind of, because often you don't even know what your book's about until you start going through it again. And you think, oh, yes, actually, it's about this. And I, and I had thought it was about this. <laughs> but uh, So I like all that, and I like honing the, the sentences and, um, and kind of bringing out themes that you didn't even know you had in there. Um, I like my edits. I don't like the, the structure and edits that come in from my editor. That's not, that's not a favourite um, part. <laughs> no, I can understand that. I definitely can. So what's next? Are you working on something at the moment? Well, I'm doing it because I have the two writing hats. I'm, try, I'm trying to do another a, a kind of psychological thriller, but it's a bit, of, a bit more of a departure. I don't know whether I'd call it a psychological thriller. It's got lots of different strands and I'm still kind of feeling my way, but it's kind of, it's based around a very monstrous central character who's uh, on the eve of her 90th birthday. Oh, wow. I love the sound mm. of that. That's yes. very intriguing. Well, now we come to the final question and this is the most important question on this podcast. So please prepare yourself for this. And the question is, what is your biscuit of choice? What biscuit is powering the writing of Murder Under the Tuscan Sun? You see, I knew you were going to ask this because I've listened to this before. So last night when we were having dinner, I was having dinner with my uh, son and daughter and I said, I'm going to have to come up with a biscuit. And then there ensued a lot of discussion, a very earnest discussion. I don't think we've ever had such, a, such <laughs> in-depth discussions around the dinner table about biscuits. And there was ginger nuts were thrown in there um, and, and those chocolate rings with all the chocolate on. But for me, the one that I like at the moment <clears throat> is the Morrison's uh, lemon shortbread. Oh, we're being very specific yes. here. We're not just shortbread. It's lemon yes. shortbread. It's from Morrison's. <laughs> why? What? What? Why does that stand out? I like a biscuit that you can, you can dunk, but it's not kind of crispy like rich tea. <laughs> so, 
So, and it's quite thick. Um, and it's got that hint of lemon. Well, we're all heading off immediately. And it's from Morrison's, which is round the corner. So, <laughs> so win, win, win. They're going to sell out, frankly, after this, <laughs> as will your book. But no, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you. Tammy Cohen, Rachel Reese, whose latest fabulous book is Murder Under the Tuscan Sun. Thank you so much. Oh, and you. Thank you. Well, I've got three more books to review for you and a lovely podcast review to thank as well. But let's get on to the next book, which is 16 Horses by Greg Buchanan. I bought this book ages ago and it was sitting on my bookshelves looking at me saying, you need to read me, don't you? I thought, yes, I do. And then I heard that Greg was publishing his next book and I thought, ah, I really do need to read it. And what a book. I read some of it. I listened to some of it on audiobook. I had a long... I had a very long drive. I had an eight-hour drive a few days ago, which was lovely. So this did keep me glued to driving, which is helpful. And at one point, my son said, why are you pulling that face? And I said, because something really shocking has happened. And that is this book in a nutshell. Shocking. In a good way, I hasten to add. So 16 Horses. Let me read you the blurb of this one. Near the dying English seaside town of Ilmarsh, local police detective Alec Nichols discovers 16 horses' heads on a farm, each buried with a single eye facing the low winter sun. After forensic veterinarian Cooper Allen travels to the scene, the investigators soon uncover evidence of a claim of crimes in the community. Disappearances, arson and worse, all culminating in the reveal of something deadly, lurking in the ground itself. In the dark days that follow, the town slips into panic and paranoia. Everything is not as it seems. Anyone could be a suspect. And as Cooper finds herself unable to leave town, Alec is stalked by an unseen threat. The two investigators race to uncover the truth behind these frightening and insidious mysteries, no matter the cost. Let's do first sentence, chapter one. Tufts of cloud burned black before the sunrise, the horizon littered with the flotsam of old and rusted silhouettes. They were alone. Chemtrails, the farmer had said to Alec early on their walk. Other than this, he had been silent. What a book! Now, if you love crime books, as we all do, and you're looking for something different, something a bit more brutal and edgy, but with a story and characters that you care about and a great plot, you're going to love this. It's expertly written, um, superbly plotted, and it's it grips you, that's for sure. Not for the faint-hearted, but it's a it's a good, good read. And I'm looking forward to the next one. I'm very glad I finally got round to reading that one. So let's go on to the next one. 12 Secrets, Robert Gold. This was another one that had been looking at me saying, why haven't you read me? And now I have because I heard that there is also a follow up book to this one. So that's good. That's what finally uh, pushes me into getting on with it. Here we go on the blurb. Ben Harper's life changed forever the day his older brother Nick was murdered by two classmates. It was a crime that shocked the nation and catapulted Ben's family and their idyllic hometown, Hadley, into the spotlight. Twenty years on, Ben is one of the best investigative journalists in the country and settled back in Hadley thanks to the support of its close-knit community. But then a fresh murder case shines new light on his brother's death and throws suspicion on those closest to him. Ben is about to discover that in Hadley no one is as they seem. Everyone has something to hide 
and someone will do anything to keep the truth buried. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Right, chapter one. Here we go. The invitation to meet with Madeline landed in my inbox late morning. It came with no subject line, but I knew immediately what it was about. Madeline is nothing, if not persistent. I loved it. I thought it was really well written. It had the twists and turns. It's sort of a crimey thrillery. And yes, keeps you gripped, keeps you wanting more. Very good. So I've done most of the books. I've just got one more. Let me pull that out. And this is different again in a glorious way. Beautiful, Shining People by Michael Grothhouse. Listen to the blurb on this gem. An ordinary world where cars drive themselves, drones glide across the sky and robots work in burger shops. There are two superpowers and a digital cold war, but all conflicts are safely oceans away. People get up, work and have dinner. Everything is as it should be. Except for 17-year-old John, a tech prodigy from a damaged family who hides a deeply personal secret. But everything starts to change for him when he enters a tiny cafe on a cold Tokyo night. A cafe run by a disgraced sumo wrestler where a peculiar dog with a spherical head lives alongside its owner, enigmatic waitress, Neo... Now I'm trying to pronounce this. Neonya. Neotnya. Neonya. Yeah, let's go with one of those. <laughs> but she hides a secret of her own, a secret that will turn John's unhappy life upside down, a secret that will take them from the neon streets of Tokyo to Hiroshima's tragic past to the snowy mountains of Nagano, a secret that reveals that this world is anything but ordinary and it's about to change forever. Wow, this is a book. My goodness, the world building of this, the characters, the... The narration, it's first class. It really is. I thought it was excellent. And I'm definitely enjoying getting into more the sort of science fiction-y fantasy books when it's right. Some of them I still can't get on with. I suppose I'm still quite choosy, but I choose this one. Very good. So those are your books. And before I go, I need to say a huge thank you. I really do, because I'm so grateful. Honestly, when I get a little review of the podcast, I do feel I do a little jump for joy. And I have to thank Jules in the Cotswolds for their review. Like other reviews, this was recommended by David Butcher on the Radio Times podcast. I'm so glad I followed his advice. One of my favourite podcasts. Philippa's summary of the books and her interview style are perfect. Love it. That, that's made my day, week, month. It really has. Thank you so much. Means a lot. And let's just recap on the books I've mentioned today. If I can remember them, let's have a look. Yes, Force of Hate by Graham Bartlett. Love that book. And then I also reviewed, if I lift it up here, Murder Under the Tuscan Sun by Rachel Reese. And Rachel very kindly came on, as did Graham, to talk to us about those books. I reviewed for you as well 16 Horses by Greg Buchanan, 12 Secrets by Robert Gold, and Beautiful Shining People by Michael Grothus. Those are your books. And I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Guess what? I've got more books to tell you about. And a ve some very interesting reviews. I'm wagging my finger here because I think you'll be, yeah, really interested. Yes, we've got an author interview, but then we've also got the interview with someone who works in the publicity department of a publisher. 
publisher who produces some great books. So that's very, going to be very interesting. Anyway, I've waffled. We're done. I'm sending you on your way. Just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. 